On today's episode of Practical Guidance, we speak with attorney Andreas Kaltsunas. Andreas is a partner and co-chair of Baker Hostetler's National Data Risk Advisory and Cybersecurity Team. Andreas focuses on helping clients anticipate, manage, and respond to complex privacy and security issues in connected data-driven organizations. His background includes experience with the Department of Defense and FBI Cyber Task Force. Today, Andreas and I will discuss the SolarWinds, Pipeline, and other recent cyber attacks, and the Biden administration's recent reactions to cybersecurity issues. I'm your host, Kevin Hilton. I'm an attorney with LexisNexis. To learn more about LexisNexis's practical guidance research solutions, visit Lexis.com. Lexis's practical guidance gives you legal insights to support what you do. Welcome, Andreas. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me for the Practical Guidance Podcast today. Sure. Thanks, Kevin. And thanks for having me here today. It's nice to speak with you about this. Okay, Andreas, would you please tell me a little bit about the SolarWinds hack? The SolarWinds incident was in the general category of what we'd call a, a supply chain attack uh, against the SolarWinds company based in Texas, whose flagship product is a software platform named Orion. And Orion is essentially a network management tool. And when a company uses Orion, the software connects to and reports on activity occurring across the company's network. So this particular software has tentacles into critical systems throughout the customer's network. Uh, it's a popular product used by about 300,000 corporations uh, and government agencies. So when uh, Russia's SVR, which is Russia's foreign intelligence service, uh, was looking for uh, a new avenue into its intelligence gathering activities, uh, it knew that Orion was used by all these large companies, government agencies, defense contractors. And it also knew that SolarWinds, like any other good software developer, occasionally pushes out updates or patches to add features and sometimes to address security flaws. So the, the Russian SVR says to itself, hey, there's 300,000 organizations using this software. Why bother trying to break into each one of these companies one by one when instead we can just break into one company, SolarWinds, and use our access there as a way into all these different SolarWinds customers. So the SVR did just that. They found a flaw in SolarWinds network defense, broke into their network, then broke into the servers SolarWinds uses to update its software out to its customers. And once there, the SVR inserted its malicious code into the update so that when customers installed the update, they also unwittingly installed the Russian backdoor along with it. <clears throat> the backdoor uh, then quietly and covertly calls back home, tells the SVR it's been installed and it's ready for more commands. Uh, the SVR then has all these potential targets to look at and decides which ones it wants to further compromise to achieve its intelligence objectives. And that's, in a nutshell, what, what happened with SolarWinds. 
So they got the key to open up a massive amount of data for a massive amount of companies at will. Exactly. They at least gave themselves, I, you know, as, as we may talk about later, I, I, I think about these supply chain attacks as sort of the first step in an attack in an organization, which is getting the initial access to the organization. And so what they did was, uh, you know, sort of preloaded that first step and uh, and then gave themselves this this wide swath of targets to look at and say, okay, that first step's already done. We don't have to now, you know, try to fish into the organization or do something else to take that first step. We've already got that first step uh, through that SolarWinds server. And then they could then pick and choose which of the, you know, many, many companies that were uh, affected to uh, launch additional attacks against and, and, and achieve their intelligence goals. SolarWinds figured out how the attack was realized. Uh, in congressional testimony, the CEO of SolarWinds indicated there was a password <laughs> that was SolarWinds123 on Goodness. a critical system that allowed the attacker access into the organization. Um, the, the CEO uh, blamed this partly on a former intern at the company who had set the password and, as you can imagine, was panned a bit for um, sort of laying this all on the shoulders of a, of a former intern. Um, but that's, that's, uh, that's the explanation of at least the root cause of how they got in. Wow, that is a shocking error. What are the resulting security risks that we're seeing as a result of this hack? Sure. So, I, you know, the primary threat, keeping in mind who the attacker is, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, I mean, that's, that's the starting point to think about who, uh, who are the likely targets and who's most at threat from this. And, you know, what is the Russian government's intelligence goals? And so, you know, the primary threat really is to the U.S. government itself, its agencies, uh, but also really to any other sector that would be of interest to a foreign adversary like Russia. So think about... Um, critical infrastructure, including power grids, uh, energy supply, uh, healthcare organizations, especially with COVID going on now and, and foreign governments trying to get information on uh, vaccine development and other, and other COVID developments, and then, uh, and then other organizations like financial institutions. And then, and then, of course, there's the entire defense industrial base, all the DOD contractors and, and related organizations that are supporting uh, the armed forces. So th those would be the primary uh, targets that, that we would think about. You mentioned there were over 300,000 users of Orion that were impacted by the hack. Is there a sense as to how many of these were exploited by the Russian government? Yeah, so there's 300, there, there's, as I think as of about today, there's about 300,000 customers we're told that, that use the Orion product. Of those, um, there were only about 18,000 that actually installed the malicious update when it came out. So of the 300,000, about 18,000 had this, um, had this actual exposure to uh, the SVR and their ability to come in and do something else. And, uh, and then of those 18,000, what we've learned now months later from all the investigations that have been done 
is that the SVR only engaged in follow-on activity and really only a small fraction of these 18,000 systems. And that makes sense for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, one is there's a, a, you know, it's all manual work essentially that's happening from that point. Once the, you know, the, the back door is installed and then someone needs to take action with it, that's now manual work that someone has to do to, you know, exploit that backdoor that's been put in place and look around the network and, you know, figure out what it is they want to do next. And so there's a resource issue. It, it can only be done by, you know, they, they can only, you know, go after so many organizations with the resources they have. Sure. And then the second reason is they, they don't want people finding out about this vulnerability, right? They went through a lot of effort to break into solar winds to plant this back door. They want to use it for as long as they can, remain covert as long as they can. And the more organizations they use it against, the more chance that someone will discover it and uh and you know publicize the issue and 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 cause it to be fixed, which is obviously what ultimately happened and the reason we're talking about it now. So right. um, so it was really only a small fraction of those eighteen thousand that actually had a compromise. But because those eighteen thousand all had the back door installed, uh, many of them had to spend time and resources to figure out whether they were one of those uh, you know small numbers that were actually compromised. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so the hackers probably didn't want to get caught by going too big too fast. Rather, they were looking to a long game of being able to use the breach to their advantage strategically down the line. Do we know if there was any U.S. state or federal governmental impact from the breach? We certainly know that federal agencies were targeted. And I, I think Honestly, we don't know the full impact of what right. the, those attacks look like yet. Um, we know that some private companies were targeted. Of course, uh, the the FireEye company, uh, the um, the cybersecurity yeah. company FireEye was targeted, and there, I, I guess we should be glad they were because they were the company that ultimately discovered the compromise in their network and uh, exposed this issue to the world. Um, you know, had they not targeted FireEye, um, maybe we wouldn't know about it today. Um, right. So, so there were private organizations as well. Some others that we might expect that they would go after, maybe something like financial institutions. There's actually not been, uh, I don't think, any evidence that that I've seen that any, for example, financial institutions were were targeted. Uh, although many spent time looking, uh, no, no sort of further compromise, sort of second stage compromise was identified uh, of those that had the, um, the back door installed. Did you encourage your clients to take any new security measures or precautions after solar winds? Yeah, I think it's, so I think it's important to think about it, not just solar winds, right? But think about uh, supply chain attacks generally. There's um, you know, there was another one this year with, uh, I would put in the category of supply chain attack with this, um, you know, Microsoft Exchange vulnerability that, that happened a couple months ago. And right. it was, uh, in that case, uh, Chinese actors that were involved. And, and of course, if you look back over the past, you know, decade, uh, these are certainly not the only two supply chain attacks that we know about. And so, but they did really raise the... Um, you know, raise awareness of these issues. So 
when when we're thinking about supply chain attacks like solar winds um, or things like it, there's there's a couple things that that you know I've been talking to clients about, and I think that you see coming out from uh, industry experts and regulators. One is absolutely have to focus on vendor management. Um, this is a, a first step, but it's not the only step. But organizations have to ensure they're properly evaluating their vendors so they can validate that those vendors have at least baseline controls in place for cybersecurity defense. And if they're buying software from them, like SolarWinds, um, baseline controls for their secure software development process, right? And this is one of the focuses of the Biden administration right now. They're looking at what else can the U.S. government do to ensure that the software and services the government buys from its vendors will be safe. And so that's absolutely a first step. I had a background as an attorney in government procurement, and often it seemed the contracts went essentially to the lowest bidder. Are we to think that the government is now going to bring in new factors considering a company's cyber policies and history when they're evaluating requests for proposals? I think there's going to be a lot like that happening. I mean, when we look at, uh, for example, contracting in the in the Department of Defense uh, side of the government, there's significant activity going on right now with requiring additional validation about security controls in place. So there's this new thing called the cybersecurity um, uh, maturity model secure certification, CMMC, people may, may call it, and it's sort of the next generation of attempting to validate that, that DOD contractors have good security in place. It was for for years up till now it was all self-assessment hey here's here's the framework just make sure you've you've done this and and uh and say that you've done these things and we're good and what the dod is moving to now is a model where they are going to require third-party validation and actually have third-party assessors come in and validate that that a contractor is up to a certain level and if they don't meet that that third party uh standard, then they will not be eligible for certain DOD contracts. And so that's already happening in the DOD right now. There's an interim rule. It's being phased in over the next five years. Um, and there's already significant talk about porting over a similar framework and structure to all government contracting, not just, uh, not just government contracting with the DOD. But I think that the second piece to your, you know, to your question is what are what are we telling clients to be doing about this and what should they be doing is recognizing that even with all this in place, even with something like the cybersecurity maturity model and, and all this validation that, um, you know, vendor management and and having good security in place for these vendors is only one part of the response. And I think we have to recognize that better vendor management is not going to mitigate many of these supply chain attacks and things are going to slip through. You know, keep in mind, for example, that in these recent Microsoft Exchange attacks, we're talking about Microsoft was the software developer, right? right. I mean, Microsoft has already been through significant vendor management review by, you know, the major corporations and governments of the world. And I think, you know, they, they have obviously a, a robust software development process in place and yet they're going to have you know issues that come up so um 
so vendor management can't be the only answer and we just have to, you know organizations are going to have to continue to assume as they should have been before really but really continue to assume that any products or services they purchase are going to contain flaws and these may be <clears throat> inadvertent flaws like in the microsoft exchange case where there was simply just an error in the coding process that allowed a vulnerability to um to emerge or an intentional flaw like in the SolarWinds case inserted by an actor like the Russian SVR. So organizations are going to have to continue to assume that these types of things are going to exist in the products and services they buy. And, you know, understanding that, the next step really is to think about protecting the network just like an organization would against any other type of attack. And so, as I was saying before, you know, a supply chain attack oftentimes is just the first way into the network. And so you can think about it like a phishing attack or some other, you know, vulnerability that exists on the network. It's the first right. way in. And then, you know, once they, once the attacker gets in through that supply chain attack, they have to take other actions on the network, right? They have to move around to different systems. They have to collect data. They have to steal the data. And that's all stuff that, you know, with better defenses in place, organizations have at least a chance of detecting and preventing that sort of follow-on activity, even if an attacker gets in at that first stage. So let's say you have a mid-sized company and it suspects that it's been hacked. What are their responsibilities for reporting the hack? I think we would say there's certainly an obligation to investigate uh, the, the incident and there's an obligation to, um, you know, just as far as basic and sort of reasonable security controls, uh, you know, mitigating the incident and ensuring that that any uh, vulnerabilities that have been introduced and that, that you know, no organizations now aware of have been um, resolved. But for most organizations where an intrusion is discovered, um, you know, outside of some regulated industries, most organizations have no obligations to report the intrusion to anyone right now, unless the intrusion compromised personal data that triggers a breach notice obligation under a variety of state and federal and international data protection laws. Uh, in that case, an organization would need to report the compromise to individuals whose information was involved. And in some cases, uh, although not all, to various state, federal, or international data protection regulators depending on which law was uh, implicated by, the, by the, the type of data involved. So what should organizations be doing at this point to try to prepare themselves? So we talked about an organization should look for ways to implement defenses to find an attacker in the environment, assuming that you know one of these supply chain attacks is going to occur. And so then the question is, what does that look like? And you know, the first step really is doing what organizations should be doing now, which is having good risk assessments in place to evaluate what controls they have uh, that would allow them to either prevent, detect, um, and respond to things like movement across the network uh, and you know, an attacker collecting or stealing data. Um, and so that's, that's step one. Um, but because of these attacks, and especially with the solar winds attack, there's, there really has been an increased interest in something called a zero trust mindset. And it essentially 
asks defenders to stop thinking of their networks uh, in the sort of old school way of thinking about it, which is that they're sort of this walled enclave, you know, the the castle wall, and that everything outside the wall is bad and everything inside the wall is good. Uh, and instead, start thinking about everything uh, on the network, whether it's in or out, as potentially bad. Don't trust uh, something simply because it's on the network. Don't trust a user simply because the user is authenticated once with a username and password. But instead, look at the context of the activity going on um, and understand whether it makes sense. You know, does it make sense that you know user Bob, uh, even though he used Bob's username and password, is logging on at two o'clock in the morning? accessing a server that he's never accessed before and, you know, pulling out three terabytes of data and sending it out to a foreign IP address. Um, and so looking at contextual clues to understand whether there's something correct or anomalous going on. And then when something anomalous is going on, either, either block the activity or uh, put additional roadblocks into place, additional sort of authentication steps to see if that really is Bob doing it. So that, that's just one example, but that's that's the basic idea b behind the zero trust you know mindset. And it is something that is gaining a lot of interest right now. The NSA just put out a guidance document, uh, about a six page guidance document in February, really promoting this zero trust mindset. And regulators are starting to adopt it as well. And so just last week, actually last Monday, um, we saw the New York DFS issue a report in which they endorsed uh, a report on the zero, uh, I'm sorry, on the SolarWinds incident in which they endorsed zero trust specifically as a way that its regulated entities can protect against supply chain attacks. So it's, it's definitely something that's gaining, uh, gaining uh, momentum. But I always caution that these changes are not going to be fast uh, or easy to implement. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about networks that have grown organically over decades, this is going to take time to implement this new mindset across these networks. And so it's something that can be done over time. It's something that doesn't have to be, um, you know, happen all at once, but it's something that organizations should be looking at building in as they increase their, their, uh, security maturity and look for ways to build this zero trust mindset into their improvements over time. Would you talk a little bit now about what has happened since SolarWinds? So since SolarWinds, there's obviously been these additional uh, incidents. And then there was, and then on the heels of that, the Microsoft Exchange Hafnium incident came to light, uh, where it appears that actors associated with the Chinese government were exploiting a vulnerability in the uh, Microsoft Exchange server software. And this was not unlike SolarWinds, this was not something where the you know government broke into broke into Microsoft and implanted the software. That's what happened in SolarWinds. This was this was just a vulnerability that existed in Microsoft's code, the so-called zero day. There was actually several <laughs> several vulnerabilities um, that that they were using that were sort of chaining them together to be able to break into networks using this 
this uh, series of vulnerabilities. And so this was something that, that they had discovered, they being the, the actors associated with the Chinese government that's been you know labeled this, well, I'll just call them hafnium uh, is what they've been labeled. And so these hafnium actors identify these vulnerabilities and then we're using them to break into networks that we're using a certain, uh, certain flavor of the uh, Microsoft Exchange on-premises servers. So another another nation-state attack, but a different a different avenue. And then following that, we of course had the Colonial Pipeline attack, which was uh, not at least directly a sort of nation-state attack, but these um, criminal uh, ransomware attack uh, associated with the dark side ransomware group that is believed to operate uh, in or near Russia, uh, and is not necessarily operating on behalf of the Russian government, but is arguably operating at least with their, their tacit approval. Uh, and so the, the colonial pipeline was a, was a significant focusing event for, I think, the world on cyber issues and, and the potential impacts to uh, not just individual companies, but to entire nations. The attack rapidly shut down pipeline operations on the eastern uh, seaboard that very, very quickly resulted in rationing and, and other, you know, fuel shortages. The Colonial Pipeline being a, you know, it's a private company that most people outside the pipeline industry probably had never heard of before, but they supply uh, somewhere around 45% of, of fuel uh, in the eastern U.S. And so it was obviously a, a major impact to have it go down. And, and, in, and in that case, the ransomware infected IT uh, network, the, the standard sort of corporate IT network for Colonial Pipeline. It didn't, based on reports that we have, get into uh, what we would call the OT or operational technology side of the organization, which actually sort of runs the pipeline, uh, the so-called industrial control systems. But because the impact on the IT side was so uh, significant, they, they actually did a proactive shutdown of the OT side to prevent things from spreading there. And, and then it turns out that there was also some necessary, you know, functions on the IT side, like being able to bill customers. Uh, and we understand that, that because, you know, all the, because, you know, they did that proactive shutdown and because of the impacts on the IT side, their, their pipeline operations and ability to deliver fuel was uh, cut off for uh, about a week. So, you know, although there was already action by the government in the works in the form of this executive order, which we knew was coming. Uh, it hadn't been released by the time of the Colonial Pipeline attack. And, uh, and then following Colonial Pipeline within, I think, about a week or so of the, um, of the attack, the executive order came out. I, I imagine it was probably accelerated a little bit because of, because of Colonial. And so um, the executive order uh, came out. And then uh, shortly after that, in, in what was, I think, an unexpected uh, move, the, there was a, a letter that was issued directly from the White House, uh, an open letter to U.S. business leaders and executives across the nation, in which the White House was sort of directly imploring these business leaders to take the threat of ransomware seriously, to you know warn companies that, yes, the concern about data theft is important, but this isn't just about data theft. This is about sort of the continued viability of your business, the ability to um, you know continue operations, even those of you who are 
in the manufacturing sector and don't hold a lot of personal data, this is still important to you because, you know, look what happened to Colonial Pipeline. And, um, you know, if this happens to you, you may lose your ability to continue your manufacturing and other critical operations. And so this is you know, potentially an existential threat for certain businesses and needs to be taken seriously. And so outline these these concerns and advise business leaders that they need to be directly involved in you know, overseeing and, and addressing these issues and then gave some specific, you know, prescriptive measures about what organizations could do and what those business leaders should be asking their, their, their organizations about how are we do you know, what are we doing and are we doing these things that are laid out here. Um, and they were specific to protecting against ransomware threats. So that was that was an interesting and I think helpful move because it was a message from the top of the government to the tops of organizations. And it really does help reinforce the message that those of us in the industry have been saying for many, many years, which is, you know, cybersecurity is not an IT problem. It's, a, it's an enterprise-wide problem. It needs to be handled from the top, and there needs to be top-down direction and buy-in for this to actually work at companies. So I think that was an important, I think there was some important actual tactical information in there, which was useful, but I think even more importantly, it was a useful um, symbolic message about the need for you know this this issue to be elevated at organizations and, and taken seriously at all levels of the organization. You know, and then following Colonial and those events, there were there were uh, two additional attacks. There was the uh, JBS Meats attack, which had uh, not, I would say, not as quite significant effects as Colonial, but still did have some some impact on meat production uh, and delivery in the United States, and and caught national attention again. And then uh, a few weeks later. Uh, right over the holiday, the July 4th holiday weekend, there was this attack against Kaseya, which is this IT management company that manages manages IT services for uh, what appears to be thousands of, you know, mostly small and medium businesses. And the ransomware attack affected both Kaseya and then the attack sort of spread out to many of Kaseya's businesses, customers that it that it provides services for. What was interesting about that attack is it's similar to uh, the SolarWinds attack, going back to the beginning of the timeline here, in that, you know, the attacker used what I think would, I think some would consider to be a, you know, this more sophisticated style of attack where you're not attacking an individual company, but you instead go after sort of the hub of the wheel and um, and by attacking that hub and 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 compromising it, you're able to spread your infection and your attack quickly to all those who use the services of that of that one company. And we've of course seen that in other types of attacks over the years. But you know, I think it's notable that you know these ransomware attackers are using that that technique as well, as it does sort of make their operations even more potent and efficient because they can turn a single attack into um, thousands of attacks. I heard that Kaseya has impacted around 1,600 organizations. So it is rather similar to the potential reach of the SolarWinds hack that started our discussion. That's the number I've heard as well. And so many of the, you know, I don't know that we've ever, I don't know that we're really going to get the full impact of that on, on many of these small businesses because um, many of them were, you know, some of them were quite, quite small and, and I think probably didn't go through the same sort of 
you know, reporting and, and response process that, that larger businesses would. But it was quite disruptive for, for a, a significant number of, you know, businesses. And then, of course, you know, over the holiday weekend as well, which is... Great. So I know that prior to his meeting with Putin, Biden issued a list of 16 critical areas of security for the United States, essentially saying that if one of those areas is touched, we will respond. Kaseya did not touch on those 16 areas, from what I understand. Do you have any thoughts on how Biden's executive order and actions with foreign governments may actually affect change in this space? I, I think there's, there's a few things. One is clearly there's been a message from the top of the U.S. government down that this is going to be a priority. And, and what we're seeing is action, uh, increased activity by regulators across the US government including obvious action that we that we know about there was there's there's been swift action by Department of Homeland Security and it's um, the Transportation Security Administration that that most people know TSA as the people who screen your bags at the airport but they also oversee pipeline <laughs> security they issued a security directive at the end of May that um, impose new obligations on on pipeline operators and uh, mandatory breach notice obligations with a 12-hour maximum reporting window and new assessment and reporting requirements to to Department of Homeland Security. Uh, just in fact, on uh, Monday this week, issued the second security directive to pipeline operators, which is following up on the first, and we're still digesting that, but but imposing additional requirements and more prescriptive requirements uh, on those pipeline operators. A, a little concerned that although this is really strong action, that it's a little a little hyper-focused on one specific <laughs> sector. And yes, it was a pipeline operator that got hit in Colonial, but you know, that's not the only vulnerable part of our critical infrastructure. So I think we can expect, you know, that's obviously where the pressure is in the government right now to, you know, quote, do something. But um, I, I do think I do expect that we're likely going to see similar requirements, you know, spread out to other critical infrastructure, because it would be it would be a mistake to both overreact on the pipeline operators and impose you know too many requirements on them just because one uh, business happened to be in that industry. So that would be a mistake. But it would also be a mistake to completely ignore the rest of the critical infrastructure. Not not suggesting the government is ignoring all of infrastructure, but you know, to focus all of this new energy on this one industry where the one attack happened to happen, I think would be a mistake as well. Right, because water and electricity are relatively important too for us. Yeah. And to be fair, there there are more robust requirements on uh, certain parts of the energy industry, including, you know, the electrical grid, I think beyond the scope here, but I think we've, we've all heard about how the electrical, the electricity grid is not probably as um, modern as it, as it could be. And so there's, there's issues there, but there are some requirements, but, you know, other parts of critical infrastructure are, you know, largely unregulated still. So I, I expect that that we'll see other, you know, activity there. And that would be in line with what we're seeing from other regulators, which is we just tick off a couple uh, on the, the more significant side. We're seeing the SEC get much more interested and aggressive on cyber. I think this is something that was coming anyway, but I think that's the case with a lot of this. Some of it was already sort of in the works, but it's now being accelerated and becoming more aggressive as all these incidents are happening. So with the SEC, we're seeing increased activity where the SEC wants to make cyber risk 
disclosures a mandatory reporting line line item in in companies annual disclosures and we're also seeing the sec take more aggressive action in terms of reviewing and and potentially taking enforcement action against companies disclosures related to cyber so we saw in the last month the SEC launched a massive sweep in requesting companies that had some sort of involvement with the SolarWinds attack to provide information to the SEC on their experiences and response to that attack. And so they, they sent out what, what the SEC calls voluntary request for information. But most people who play in that space understand that it's not as voluntary as it sounds because there are some you know potential consequences if you don't respond. And so they were asking companies about if they were impacted by solar winds, if they installed the, the malicious software, and how they responded to it. And, and then interestingly also, I'm asking about any other types of compromises that the company experienced over a, it was roughly a, somewhere in the neighborhood of an 18 to 20, 24 month period going back to 2019. So the SEC is, is clearly stepping up its queries and potential enforcement on cyber disclosures. And there was also this settlement that they, that they released with First American Title which had a data breach back in 2019, arguably a data breach. And, and they issued, uh, First American issued a special disclosure uh, after that incident in uh, which they discussed the incident and the SEC alleged that that disclosure was not complete enough and was misleading to investors and, uh, because essentially there was a failure in the company's disclosure controls and the information known to the lower levels of the company, the IT group, did not sort of make their way up to the folks making the disclosure. And therefore, there was material information that was left out of the disclosure. And so First American settled with the SEC on that and agreed to a $500,000 fine. But this all came out around the same time. And so it, it you know, taken together, it seems to be strong indication that the SEC is getting more aggressive on cyber issues. So are we saying that the SEC may now start to play a greater role in cybersecurity by generating some market accountability for publicly traded companies through increased disclosure requirements? One of the things the SEC cares about is that, and that they've focused on, is this idea that, you know, there's a lot of sort of hypothetical statements that, that show up in disclosure and disclosures from companies where they talk about as they're talking about their cyber risk, they'll say, we might suffer, we might experience a, a, a cyber attack, and that might result in some of our data being compromised, that might result in some of our operations being compromised, and that could affect. And so it's all this might, could language. And the SEC has stated pretty clearly that it doesn't like the use of that language where the company has actually experienced an incident. Clearly, one of the threads that we're seeing here is increased calls for disclosure across the board. And yeah. so okay. um, yeah. in particular, with respect to ransomware attacks, and we're, we're seeing that calls for additional disclosure around, you know, if companies are paying ransoms, how much those ransom payments are. There's been, you know, explicit calls for that sort of information so that even if we're not going to ban those payments because people, I think, do generally, even though there has been calls for that, I, I do think people generally recognize that that's just sort of piling on the victim and that it's just making a bad situation worse. Okay. And so even if we're not going to ban the payments, there are calls for at least, well, we at least need to know the scope of the problem. We need to know if, if those payments are being made. We need to know how much they are. We need to know where they're going. 
And to the extent the government can then take action to address those, then that increases their ability to do that. And that's the other critical threat I think I've, I've got to make sure I mention is sort of the government action, not because there's two sides to the coin here, right? If we and let, if we back up big picture and say we want to stop ransomware, there's there's sort of two pieces to that, right? You can focus on the victims and companies that are paying ransoms and experiencing these events, and you can say things like, "Okay, you need better security. You need to disclose to us what what's happening." You can do all those things, and the and the like. The White House letter to the businesses is great, improved security. But if we don't do something about the other side of the coin, which is increasing consequences for these attackers and actually reducing their incentive to launch these attacks, if we don't do something about that piece, we're, we're never going to solve this problem. You are, the battle between the defenders and the attackers is always asymmetrical. The attackers always have got the advantage. And if you've got people who are operating from safe havens where there's virtually no consequence to their actions and only potential benefit to being more aggressive and to attacking companies. I, I just don't think we're going to win the battle by, by even forcing through regulation, more regulation businesses to have, quote, better security. I just don't think that's a winning battle. So we've, we've got to also hit that other side, which is which is creating more consequences for the attackers, reducing, uh, increasing their costs and and reducing their incentives to to engage in this behavior. And I and I have seen uh, this is, in my view, the most positive development over the last you know four months is we've seen more activity from the Biden administration on at least trying to you know make efforts in this area than I, I think we've seen in, in, in a long time. And a few things, you know, one is Department of Justice has, you know, announced a new initiative where they're going to be treating ransomware attacks similarly to uh, the way they treat uh, terrorism cases, which does have some important sort of structural, you know, effects in, in the way those cases are handled internally and treated at, at DOJ. So I think that's that's a positive move. And then we've seen significant diplomatic efforts by the administration, but also President Biden himself in uh, addressing these issues with Putin directly and, and with other you know, world leaders and uh, making some some pretty, you know, most recently some pretty direct and aggressive statements. And I think the most important one being that he communicated to Putin that regardless of whether these are quote, state-sponsored attacks, if they're happening from Russian soil and the U.S. is providing uh, the Russian government with, with sufficient information to know who's doing this and what's happening, that the U.S. expects the Russian government to do something about it. And that if the Russian government doesn't, then the U.S. government will have to do something about it. And that, by the way, wasn't couched in terms of, you know, specifically tied to those critical infrastructure you know, sectors, which I was a little disappointed with that piece that where it was sort of the red line was the critical infrastructure pieces. While I, while I understand uh, the reason for it, I was immediately concerned that we've just sort of created the, these are the, these are all the companies the that are bar. fair game for you to go after. <laughs> right. So I, I've been very happy with the more recent statements and positions. And of course, after uh, President Biden's most recent statement to Putin about this, the revel uh, attack group, which uh, was responsible for both the JBS meets, 
and the Kaseya attack, their infrastructure went completely offline a couple days later. We still, as of today, right now, we don't know exactly what happened. We don't know if this was action by the Russian government at, you know, the U.S. government's request. We don't know if this was, uh, you know, another, you know, an ally of the U.S. that took some action from another part of the world, or if it was some action that U.S. government took directly. But we know that the infrastructure went offline. It could also very well be that the the organization itself revel got enough you know maybe they got enough money from what they you know from the Kaseya attack i don't know how much they they ultimately got at this point but uh and then decided that that they were just gonna shut down for a while try and take the heat off and and you know come back and rebrand later i think though whatever it was i i can't imagine that without the pressure that the Revel Group was planning to just shut down, you know, last Wednesday when it did. I, right. I, I have to imagine that it was tied to this pressure. And so... So that's hopeful. Yeah, it's positive. Are you making any adjustments to the advice you're giving clients now post-pipeline, post-Kaseya? I mean, certainly the recent, the recent government activities is adjusting some of the advice we're giving in terms of public companies and how to deal with SEC disclosures. There's obviously right. some, some specific takeaways there. I think, I think in terms of how to prepare for and respond to a ransomware attacks in general, I mean, this is something that we've, you know, that we've been living with many of our clients for years now. And so I'm, you know, I am pleased to see that there's a broader attention to this and that and that it's you know risen to the level that it's getting attention from the government and lawmakers and i am though concerned that there's going to be a little bit too much of a knee-jerk reaction on focusing too much energy on you know sort of the victims of the attacks and and so i'm hoping to continue right. to see the right balance between you know sort of focusing on those issues and then and then continuing to focus on the actors themselves i'm the balance looks good right now but i think we just have to to monitor that so i think the immediate response and planning i think these actions are helping to reinforce that and just helping drive i think more companies to take the the steps that we've been you know saying companies need to take for for some time now i certainly am getting more inquiries over the last you know several months that i'm i'm certain are driven by all of the media attention and the government attention to it. So I do think it's working as far as raising awareness of the issue. Thanks so much for your time, Andreas. And thanks for your time, listeners. If you wish to learn more about Andreas Kaltsunas and his cyber practice at Baker Hostetler, you can find out more about him and the work he is doing via his firm's website at bakerlaw.com. To learn more about LexisNexis's practical guidance research solutions, visit Lexis.com. Lexis's practical guidance gives you legal insights to support what you do. Tune in to my next episode, where I discuss with Loeb & Loeb partner Terrence Allen the anticipated rise in mergers and acquisitions work arising out of the growing state and federal legalization of marijuana. Thanks again, and be well.